Good morning, church. I like that. Very responsive. Excellent. Well, it's a joy to be with you. And like Hunter said, I get to uh, see him once a month and pray together with other uh, pastors in our area. Uh, the Lord is doing good work here in uh, New England in the greater Boston area. And it's a joy to get to open up God's word uh, with you. Now, the way we do it at my church is uh, we, we read God's word, and then I will usually end by saying, this is the word of the Lord, which is an invitation to us to be reminded of just the, the, the profundity and the gift that it is that God has spoken into the darkness, that he has given us his word and revealed himself to us. So we get to respond by saying, thanks be um, to God. So if you would, hear the word of the Lord in Psalm chapter 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are, as but, uh, are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken the light of your word into the darkness to light our way, to guide our path. That we may know you, that we may be known by you, that we may follow in your ways. So I pray, Lord, that you would take this psalm and you would use it to shape us. Father, where we need conviction this morning, I pray that in your fatherly and tenderly care, you would convict us, Lord. Where we have beliefs that have uh, gone astray, Lord, would you help set those right? Where there are desires of our heart that do not conform to the pattern of your will, Lord, would you change us from the inside out? Would you teach us, Lord, the wisdom to number our days? And most of all, Lord, I pray that we would see the true wisdom who is Jesus Christ, we may worship him, love him, and follow him all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen. Polaris, or its more common name, is the North Star. 
It's part of the constellation, the Little Dipper. Now, other than the sun, it's probably the most well-known star in the northern sky. And for a good reason. See, before modern navigation uh, technologies like GPS, seafarers in the northern hemisphere relied on the North Star as the fixed object in the fluid night sky. A little science for you. If you remember, the Earth rotates on its axis. And because of this rotation, the stars in the night sky appear to move, except for one star, the North Star. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the North Star is just one degree away from the, the, the axis of the North Celestial Pole. So even though it moves, its movement is, is so uh, insignificant that it appears to be fixed. It's, it's, it's the fixed object in a fluid night sky. In other words, the North Star is so close to the pivot point uh, of the Earth's axis that it appears fixed and, and, and constant in the night sky. Now, this is crucial because if you are going to try to navigate, if you're going to try to figure out where you are and where you're going, you need a constant. You need a reference point. You need something that isn't moving so that you can move with reference and respect to it. You need a consistent reference point to know where you are. In fact, Polaris as a navigation tool is more reliable than even a magnetic compass. And it has been a part of navigating and wayfinding techniques in the northern hemisphere for generations. See, for most of human history, when you needed to navigate your way at night, you would look to the North Star. In a fluid night sky where hour by hour things change, you need a constant. You need something reliable to navigate your way. Now, friends, as you consider navigating your way in a world that is constantly changing, what is your constant? I mean, if you look at the headlines, if you look at what's going on in our world, it can seem as if things are sometimes changing by the hour. What is your constant? What is your reference point that enables you to find your way? Every day we face many unknowns. We wake up and we don't know exactly what's going to happen every day. So some of the questions that you might be asking, some of the questions I'm asking, will interest rates rise? Will they continue to soar, making it even more difficult to get a loan? Is inflation going to erode the buying power of the dollar? Will the challenges that our kids face, will they be, uh, 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 will they be increasingly difficult? Will the challenges in raising children, will they get better or will they get worse? We're about to face an upcoming political season that seems to be more divisive than ever before that seeks to divide both country and church. The relationships that we have, will they be a source of joy and healing or will they be sources of pain and hurting? When you consider all the many thousands of decisions that you will make this year, how will you navigate your way? Well, this morning we want to turn to the constant of God's word, and in particular, we're looking at Psalm chapter 90. And in this psalm, one of the things I love about it is the psalmist gives us five constants in the midst of a constantly changing world that we can use to navigate our way. So our text will break up into five movements this morning. If you're a note taker, I'll tell you our outline this morning. The first constant is this, that there is refuge for the wanderer. There is refuge for the wanderer. Constant number two is this. 
Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Constant number three, bad news fills the headlines. Constant number three is that bad news fills the headlines. Constant number four is good news, though, is on the horizon. Even though bad news fills the headlines, one of the constants you can bank on is that good news is on the horizon. And then constant number five, God's favor establishes our work. These are five constants in a constantly changing world. Let's begin with our first constant, that there is refuge for the wanderer. Now, before we unpack uh, verses 1 and 2, I want to help set this psalm in its proper context. This psalm has been historically attributed to Moses, making it one of the oldest psalms that we have. It's been passed down from generation to generation and then later written down and preserved for us in the book of Psalms. So what's the context of this particular psalm? Well, it's not immediately clear. Sometimes psalms will come out and say this is what's going on. But in this context, it doesn't exactly say. It's not explicitly stated in the text. But I do think there are some clues in the text that we can kind of help understand when and what was going on when this psalm was written. The first is that it's a community lament. It's a community lament. So you'll find phrases uh, that are written in the first person plural. So you'll find words like we and our. You'll see phrases like the year of our lives or teach us to number our days or satisfy us and so on. So this is written in the context of a community. So it's the psalm not necessarily of an individual and in their circumstance, but of a community. And then in verse 13, there's a prayer for God to return to his people and to have pity on them. There's a prayer in verse 14 for the Lord to satisfy them with his love. And then there's a recognition in verse 15 that the people of God have experienced many days and years of affliction. So when you put all that together, a community lamenting and that they've experienced many years of affliction, that there is iniquity amongst the community and there's a call for the Lord to re return to them and to favor them once more. And you think about the life of Moses and his time of leadership among the people of God and you ask, when would this psalm make sense? It becomes clear that this is a, a song singing a lament about their past sin and for God to return to them in favor once again. In the light of those questions, it starts to make sense that this was written at the end of Moses' life as the people of God are standing on the banks of the River Jordan and ready to enter into the promised land. And you think about the fact that the nation, or the soon-to-be nation of Israel has gone astray and they've wandered, they've, they've lost their faith, they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and now a new generation is standing on the banks of the river Jordan ready to enter into the promised land and they're consecrating themselves as a people. They're returning again to the Lord saying, return uh, to us, establish the work of our hands. We're, we're about to enter into the land that you've promised our parents. And Lord, would you establish the work? Would you make us a people? Would you be our God once again? See, this generation had seen their parents' generation. I like to call them the Exodus generation. They had seen them die off one by one during those 40 years. And now it's their turn 
to take the baton as the people of God and fulfill their calling as the people of God as they enter into the promised land. And one of the things I love about the Psalms is they invite us to enter in. They're so filled with poetry. They're so filled with emotion that it touches something um, in, our, in our humanity that invites us to enter in. And in particular, we are invited to enter into Israel's story this morning because their story is our story. We are wanderers just like them. They are, they are sojourners in a land that is not their own. They are not yet home with the Lord. And yet we can pray this same kind of prayer. We can lament our sin and we can ask the Lord to favor us once again and to be our God and establish the work of our hand. We can join with the people of God and say, Lord, forgive us for where we have sinned against you. Like the people of God, we can pray, Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation. When you've walked with the Lord for a long time, it's easy to get complacent. It's easy to forget that feeling of when we were first uh, when, when, when our faith was, uh, came alive inside of us, when, when we recognized the weight of our sin, and yet we also recognized the beauty and glory of our Savior. We can lose sight of that. We can enter into this prayer this morning. We can pray that God would fulfill our calling as the people of God in a land that is not our own to see the mission of God go forward until we are finally and forever home with God. And with that context, let's hear again verses 1 and 2. The psalm says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now these verses declare that though we are wanderers, though we are sojourners, that we do in fact have a refuge. We do in fact have a dwelling place and it is the Lord himself. Charles Spurgeon said, Wanderers though we may be in the howling wilderness, yet we find a home in you. Even as our forefathers did when they came out of Ur of the Chaldees and dwelt in tents among the Canaanites, to the saints the Lord Jehovah, the self-existent God, stands instead of mansions and roof tree. He shelters, comforts, protects and preserves and cherishes all his own. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the saints dwell in their God and have always done so in all ages. Not in the tabernacle or the temple do we dwell, but in God himself. See, just like the people of Israel who stood on the bank of the river Jordan with a whole host of unknowns before them, who would they meet? What people would they have to conquer? What would it be like? Just like them, we face trials and unknowns every single day. And yet the psalmist wants to point us to a constant. He wants to point us to God who is everlasting, who is eternal, who has always existed. He has been and will be the dwelling place of his people from generation to generation. And the psalmist points to the mountains in order to beautifully make his point. How many of you have seen like mountains, like the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. Anybody? I mean, they're impressive. I remember before, uh, as, a, as a young man, before I became a Christian, the Lord used going to the Rocky Mountains to make a prideful, arrogant young teenage boy feel so incredibly small. 
Because when you stand in front of those mountains and you can see them for miles, you see something bigger than yourself. And you go, how did those get there? And the psalmist is pointing to the mountains to make his point. And mountains, they seem huge, right? They seem immovable, like they've been there forever. But the reality is they haven't been there forever. There is one who put them there. And he is the ever Lasting God. He's the one who brought them forth. And you get language and imagery of them being birthed and, and coming forth. And, and as the Lord forms the earth, who is the one who put the mountains there? Well, it's the everlasting God. In other words, friends, just like it seems like the mountains aren't going anywhere, God is not going anywhere. And therefore, wanderer, you will always have a safe refuge. You will always have a dwelling place. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses in the message. He says, God, it seems you've been our home forever. Long before the mountains were born. Long before you brought the earth itself to birth. From once upon a time to kingdom come. You are, you are God. See, in our limited and frail bodies with souls that can easily be overwhelmed, by fear and anxiety, these verses say, friend, in Christ, in the Lord, you are never alone. You are never homeless. You are never without a refuge and a dwelling place. You're never left to figure things out on your own. God's love for you doesn't shift with the times. It's not based on your performance. His grace has connected you to Christ, our ultimate refuge. By our union with him, we have a dwelling place. Paul David Tripp writes, as God's child, I must never see myself as poor and forsaken. I must never buy into the lie that I have no recourse or that I have no hope. I must never think that my life is ruled by my difficulty. I must never give way to despondency or despair. Grace has opened the door of hope and refuge to me by connecting me to the one who is eternal and who rules all the circumstances and relationships that would cause me to feel alone. Friends, as God's child, we're never without hope. Despondency and despair are never to be our name. Though there's much I don't know about this year ahead or the life ahead, not even a guarantee that there is one, but I do know that for as long as I have breath, there is a constant to guide my way that God is my refuge. There's refuge for the wanderer. Now let's look at verse 3 to see our second constant, that tomorrow is not guaranteed. The psalmist writes, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. This verse sounds like they were borrowed from Ecclesiastes. This last year, we our church preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it felt like every week I was getting up there saying, hey, you're going to die. Every single week, hey, you're going to die, you're going to die. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes before? It's sobering. It, it reminds us that tomorrow is not guaranteed because chapter after chapter, the preacher of Ecclesiastes reminds us that life is brief and fleeting. And in the end, everyone 
returns to the dust of the ground. And it seems like these verses here are borrowed from that book. If verses 1 to 2 in this psalm are meant to anchor us to the eternality of God, verses 3 through 6 are meant to confront us with the reality of our own mortality. Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the masses, something to kind of dull our senses as we trudge our way along in this cruel life. One of the false claims made against Christianity is that it peddles in pie-in-the-sky escapism. And any time I hear that claim, I wonder, have you ever actually read the Bible? Because when you read the Bible, you'll find that it is brutally honest about the dire nature of our situation. Page after page, it reminds us of our, um, of our sin, of our frailty. It reminds us that we are going to die, that we do not have tomorrow guaranteed. It reminds us that because of the curse of sin, one out of every one person is headed for death. See, every day you live, you are just one day closer to your inevitable death. Like the sands running through the hourglass, it's slipping away. Friends, that's not escapism. That's realism. That is confronting us with the reality of our own mortality. Rather than an opiate to dull the senses, you know, the scriptures are a smelling salt to arouse our consciousness, to tell us to wake up, to make the most of our days. See, friends, mark my words, people living today who are, like right now today, not necessarily in this room, but though maybe some people in this room, people living right now will have 2023 on their headstone. Tomorrow is not guaranteed, and sometimes death seems far away. We might hear about celebrities dying or someone famous dying, or we hear about people passing away in our news feeds or on the news stations. But sometimes it's much closer to home. Sometimes we get a phone call that changes everything. To hear of the news of the passing of a mother or a father, a brother or a sister. Just as the eternality of God is a constant, so also is the mortality of humanity. It is a constant. It is something that is not changing. We can pretend to be immune to death, but denial doesn't change the fact that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Now, how does this sobering news act as a constant to help us navigate life? Remember, that was my premise, that these constants would help you navigate your life. Well, it helps us in this way. Our looming date with death can help us to live our life backwards. If you know and you come to grips with the reality that one day you are going to die, you can navigate your life working backwards. You can go, well, what do I want it to be like when I get to the end? Because everyone is inevitably going to get there. Now, is death an intruder into God's good creation order? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is death an enemy? Yes. Death is no friend to the Christian. But, like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, the day of your death can become a mentor to give you sobriety and perspective. That's why he says that the day of mourning is better than the day of birth. Why? Because it preaches a better sermon. 
There's nothing more sobering. There's nothing that wakes up people more than sitting in the house of mourning, having to come to grips with their own mortality. And that fact can help you navigate your life. Death can become a mentor to give you sobriety and perspective. It can become a tuning fork to calibrate your life when it goes out of tune. Death can become a compass that can keep you focused on where to go. It can be a mentor to constantly remind you of what is trivial and what is significant. I've been having my older teenage boys read through the book of Proverbs, and all they have to do is look at what day it is. Like, so if it's, you know, April the 16th, they go to Proverbs 16, and they, they read the proverb, and then they tell me something that they've learned from the book. And one of the things is we've been saturating ourselves in uh, Proverbs and in the wisdom literature is how much there is a, uh, we have found that wisdom is essentially knowing the difference between what is trivial and what is significant. Over and over, you see the fool is the one who takes what is insignificant and, and elevates it to a place of significance. And yet they take the things that are significant and they, um, they, uh, they, they make them um, insignificant. They deprioritize them. That's what death can do. When you live in light of the end, it helps you remember what is truly important, what is truly significant, and it helps you to prioritize those things. The psalmist is saying, remember, life is fleeting. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. So make the most of your days. Our first constant is there's refuge for the wanderer. We're never homeless. We're never without a place to turn. The second constant is tomorrow is not guaranteed. So make the most of your days. Now let's look to our third constant in verse 7 to see that bad news fills the headline. Verse 7 says, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I promise we're going to get to some good news. But before we do, we have to come to grips with the bad news. Not only do we have a looming date with death, but in the course of our 70 to 80 years, do you hear what the psalmist said? He says we're gonna, our life is going to be filled with toil and trouble. So you can just expect on any given day you're going to get bad news. So here's some things you can just expect in your life. You are going to miss some opportunities. You'll miss deadlines. Some of your plans, not, even if you're a great planner, are not going to pan out the way you planned. Some days you're going to go to start your car. And it's not going to start. You're going to have unexpected expenses. You're going to get a phone call, and it's going to cost you thousands of dollars. You will have unproductive weeks where it seems like you just can't get things done, as if your very work is fighting against you. The thorns and thistles promised in Genesis 3. There will be days where it seems like you just can't get out of a rut. 
where you feel melancholy, you feel depressed, and no matter what good news you hear, you just can't get out. Friends, you will feel and experience the thorns and thistles of living in a sin-soaked world. And that's the point of these verses, that bad news will fill the headlines and that all of them have their ultimate cause as the curse of sin. Verse 7 reminds us that we are brought to an end by God's anger. And when we think about God's anger, I don't want you to think of a two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. That is not what God's anger is. God's wrath is not unjust, nor is it uh, uh, temperamental. His wrath is simply his settled opposition against sin. It's God saying, I hate sin, and I'm going to do something about it. It's his just judgment against our rebellion, our iniquity, and our sin. See, we die because we all stand under the just judgment of a holy God. Michael Wilcock, in his commentary on the Psalms, says this. We are mortal because God is angry, and God is angry because we are sinful. That's why we have mortalities, because of sin. And in this psalm, the community is acknowledging their sin. It's actually the very best thing you can do when it comes to your sin. It's not to pretend like it's not there, not to rationalize it, not to minimize it, not to pretend it's not there, but to acknowledge it, to confess it. They know that before a God who sees all, their sin is not hidden. And they know that they deserve judgment for sin. And they know that because of sin, every day in this life is going to be difficult. If I could sum up the last nine verses in, these, uh, in this text, it would be this. Life is short and it's marked by difficulty. That's what's happening. This is a psalm of lament. It's saying things are difficult. And before we get to the good news in verses 12 to 17, we need to come to grips with the bad news and set proper expectations. In 1985, there was a research study done by David Meister about waiting in lines. And so it was kind of a social psychology experiment of, of how people experience the wait. No one likes to, to wait in lines. And this study, this study sought to understand the psychology of waiting. And one of, there, there were several findings, but one of the main findings was this. Uncertain waits are longer than known finite waits. Now, it doesn't mean that they were longer in terms of the actual time. What he's talking about is if you have no idea how long the wait is going to be, your experience of that wait feels longer. But if you know how long the wait is going to be, that, that, that same period of time feels different. And so the takeaway was, if you give people proper expectations on wait times, their experience of that wait is different. So think about you go into a restaurant and you're going to wait for a table and the host tells you, hey, it's going to be 30 minutes. Well, now you as the uh, client get to decide, do I want to wait those 30 minutes or do I want to leave and go find uh, a meal somewhere else? But it helps you set those expectations as opposed to 
If they came in and said, um, we just don't know how long it's going to be, or worse, they tell you it's going to be 10 minutes, but then 10 minutes turns to 15 minutes, turns to 20 minutes, turns to 30 minutes, same amount of time, but I promise you, your feeling of that time is going to be different. Or think about waiting in line for, uh, uh, at, at an amusement park, right? It's helpful to have signs to know at this point, this ride is 30 minutes or it's an hour or whatever it may be, but you know what you're getting into before you step into the wait. The wait is the same, but your managed expectations change your entire experience. That's my point. Why am I saying all of this? I'm saying the psalmist is trying to give us proper expectations of life in a fallen world. See, if you start life thinking everything is going to be peachy king, everything is going to go my way, well then, when you are confronted with the reality that not everything is going to go your way, those missed expectations are going to feel a lot different than if you set proper expectations. That's why I love God's word. It helps us know what to expect in this life. These verses help us avoid the extremes of hardened pessimism or the other side, the eternal optimist. The eternal optimist is going to be crushed by this life. And as you navigate the everyday stuff of life, the psalmist is saying do so with the proper expectation that at some point you will experience toil and trouble. Why? Because bad news fills the headlines. It's just part of living in a fallen, broken, sin-soaked world. And if you will set the proper expectations, it'll help you to begin to deal with what you're facing. I think the whole reason the psalmist begins by telling us that God is a safe place for us to dwell, that we have refuge as wanderers, is because life in this fallen world is not safe or easy. So he's reminding you that you have a place to run. You have a refuge. Our first constant is there's refuge for the wanderer. Our second constant is tomorrow is not guaranteed. Third, bad news fills the headlines. Now, finally, I promised some good news. Good news is on the horizon. So verse 12, the psalmist writes, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Now, as often is the case with these psalms of lament, there's a turn. The first half is usually lament and, 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 and crying out all the pain in this world. And then there's usually this turn where the psalmist begins to rehearse the faithfulness of God. And there's usually a prayer for God to move on behalf of God's people. This constant reminds us that no matter how dark our situation, no matter how bad the bad news is, that God desires us to have wisdom, to live faithfully, and ultimately to be satisfied with his steadfast love. Pastor Phil Thompson writes, into the dissatisfaction of this life, you can pray for God to bring satisfaction. Into sorrow, pray for rejoicing. Into the depths of your pain, pray for gladness. And in spite of lost years, 
pray for eons of restoration. Friends, I want to tell you that satisfaction and rejoicing don't always come from a different set of circumstances. See, in this life, you will have trouble, and usually what leads us to satisfaction and rejoicing isn't that God removes those circumstances. Satisfaction and rejoicing come as the up and downs of life drive us deeper into the arms of God. It's in seeking refuge in Him that we find a reason to rejoice. So I want to unpack these last six verses. These last six verses are prayers. They're all written in the form of a prayer. And because they're inspired prayers preserved for us by God's word, I would encourage you to pray them. One of the best, my, some of my best times of praying are just taking the words that I find in scripture, particularly in the Psalms, and letting them teach me how to pray. So six prayers that you can pray. When you don't know how to pray, praying scripture back to God is a great way to have your prayers align with the purposes and will of God. So the first prayer in, uh, in verse 12 is a prayer for wisdom. Moses says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now this is not a prayer to teach us to, to, uh, to accurately know like how many days we've been alive or to know like, Lord, how long will I get to be alive? I'd love to know the exact number. That's not what this is about. This is a prayer for self awareness. He's saying, teach us the number of our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's a, it's a prayer to live in light of our own mortality and to make our days count. We need wisdom so that we don't waste the gift of life on triviality or even worse, wasting our life on sin and sinful pursuits that will erode our joy and keep us from having real lasting satisfaction. Do you know that God loves to answer prayers for wisdom? In James chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God is not stingy when it comes to answering the prayer of wisdom. So pray this prayer of self-awareness that the, the, the Lord would teach you to number your days. The second prayer is a prayer for mercy. This is asking God to turn from wrath and extend mercy and grace. Did you know this is the only recourse for sinners in the hands of an angry God? You can't minimize sin. You can't rationalize sin. You can't justify your own sin. And you can't pretend like it's not there. So what do you do? You confront it. You acknowledge it. And you ask for mercy. Asking God for forgiveness. See, God is right to judge sinners for our iniquity. And yet, the gospel tells us that this same God is patient and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And by his glory and grace, he will forgive you. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The arm of the Lord is not too short to save. And if you call upon the name of the Lord, acknowledging your sin honestly and genuinely, and beg for forgiveness, you will receive his abundant grace. Just as sin drives us from God, repentance draws us to him. Though our lives are short, they need not end in bitterness. Repentance opens the floodgates for God's mercy and love 
making this third prayer possible. In this third prayer, the psalmist says, satisfy us with your love that we may rejoice. The psalmist is asking that the Lord's love would satisfy him. Again, Charles Spurgeon is poetic. He said, good men know how to turn the darkest trials into arguments at the throne of grace. He who has but the heart to pray need never be without pleas in prayer. The only satisfying food for the Lord's people is the favor of God. This Moses earnestly seeks for. And as the manna fell in the morning, he beseeches the Lord to send at once his satisfying favor, favor, that all through the little day of life they may be filled therein. Are we soon to die? Yes. Then, Lord, do not starve us while we live. Friends, when your sins have been forgiven by grace through faith and your record of debt has been canceled because it was nailed to the cross, when God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, then you can rejoice and be glad and be filled with the satisfying love of God. Fourth, the psalmist prays and asks for God, uh, his blessing in proportion to their affliction. On one hand, we need to be careful not to uh, define blessing in terms of material worth and the world standards of blessing. But at the same time, we need not have a too narrow definition of blessing. We are allowed to pray and ask God to bless us. And then we trust him to bless us as he so sees fit. Here the psalmist prays and says, bless us. In the, to the direct proportion that we've been afflicted. The New Testament reminds us that all of our afflictions, all of them are light and momentary. And one day that we will experience an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So whether in this life or in the next, all of our affliction will be replaced by glory. First constant is there's refuge for the wanderer. Second constant, tomorrow is not guaranteed. Third constant, bad news fills the horizon. Fourth constant, good news is on the horizon. And here's our final constant, that God's favor establishes our work. Look at these last two verses with me briefly. Moses writes, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We know that life is difficult and short. We are a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. Our date with death is looming and yet there is work to be done. The mission of God goes forward. It is not done. And just like the people of Israel stood on the bank of the river Jordan, waiting to take their inheritance to establish the nation of Israel and play their part in God's story of redemption. So we too, as the church, take our place in the story of God's redemption. And though our time is often filled with mundane realities like going to work and getting up and brushing our teeth and eating food and, 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 and all of those things, we also do incredible things as humans. We get to play a part in building uh, an economy that provides means and resources to fund and fuel our lives. We get to uh, uh, experience friendships that give all kinds of flavor and meaning to life. We will marry and raise families that reflect the image of God 
and give hope to the gospel. We will do eternal things like share the gospel and disciple people, teach little ones how to know the Lord and love the Lord and follow in his footsteps. We will get to be a part of building God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And all of this is our work as the people of God. And the psalmist knows that if our work is going to be established, there is only one who can establish it, and it is the Lord himself. And so at the end, he says, Lord, establish the work of our hands. And that is a prayer that you and I can pray. In a world that is constantly changing and inconsistent, the psalmist says, Christian, take heart, because God himself is constant. He alone can establish the work of our hands according to his purposes and fueled by his power. That's why in light of the resurrection of Christ, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So even though our time is short and life is often difficult, the Lord will establish our work. Friends, life is filled with many unknowns. Our world is rapidly changing, but we are not a people without hope and certainty. Psalm 90 teaches us that though we wander, we are never lost. We are not homeless. God is our dwelling place and refuge. And though tomorrow is not guaranteed and bad news will fill the headlines, there is good news on the horizon. And when we abandon our vain efforts at finding satisfaction and our sinful pursuits, when we repent and turn to Christ, we will find the satisfaction and rejoicing that our hearts desire. And there, by grace, through faith, the Lord will establish the work of our hands. Let's pray.